This past week, um, I had a little bit of, a, of an opportunity to travel um, for two days um, out to Minnesota. And, uh, you know, it's funny. You get, off the, you get off the plane and you realize you're in a colder place than, than where I live. That's, that's odd. I have not had that experience in a while. Um, but, yep, I went out with uh, Albie Powers, who's the pastor at Elm City Church uh, here in Keene, the church plant uh, that we are coming together with over these past few months. We've been talking about it and uh, into the new year, and we're just on this big, exciting journey together of coming together. And um, so I had the chance to travel with him out to Minnesota, and uh, I was really especially excited about this trip because it was led in part by a guy named Alan Hirsch. And uh, Alan Hirsch is a guy uh, that I've been a fan of for a long time. And it was really cool because Alan Hirsch, he goes oftentimes and he speaks at large gatherings, you know, with like thousands of people in attendance. And he talks to church leaders and, and talks about the mission of God. He's super up there on my list of guys that I just really look up to with this whole missional thing and this missional journey as a church, which, which I'll get into in a minute here. But um, I was super honored because we got to be a part of a, co a cohort, which is a group of about 15 people that got to spend two days straight with Alan Hirsch. And it was like super great, super awesome. And um, I am just a, a, a live wire today. Let me just tell you that. I just want to forewarn you that, um, you know, I've moved everything out of the way just in case that I have a full range of motion radius. And uh, so here we are, we're sitting in this group of people, there's, there's 15 people in this group, and here we are, we're sitting under the teaching of Alan Hirsch, and I'm just like, I feel like I'm sitting at Jesus' feet. You know, he's not Jesus, he would tell you he's not Jesus, and that's a good thing, but man, it was so great to just be under the teaching of somebody that I really look up to. And then this other thing happened, and this is how I became a super fanboy at this moment. Alan came over to, Albie and I were just kind of chatting and kind of taking some things in, and it was lunchtime, and he comes over, and he's like, hey, Hey guys, he's Australian. He's like, hey, you want to get some lunch? And we were like, uh, 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 sure. <laughs> so we, we got to sit and have lunch with Alan Hirsch. I was like, this is, what could be better than this right now? So it was, it was awesome, and, and I just totally geeked out. But man, like, I started reading again his book, The Forgotten Ways. And uh, as I was on the plane ride back, I was I was taken back by an observation that he makes in this book, and I wanted to make it for you today. He asked the question, how many Christians do you think existed 100 years after Jesus, or AD 100? And then he asked a question to follow that up. He, he then asked, how many Christians do you think there were just before Constantine came on the scene in 310 AD? Just a little over 200 years later. So here are the stats, okay? 8,100, about 100 years after Jesus was with us on earth, it's believed as few as 25,000 Christians existed. Now, that's pretty good, right? Uh, 100 years. And then right before Constantine comes on the scene in AD 310, upwards of 20 million Christians existed. Now, that begs a question for us. How did Christians go from being a grassroots movement to being the most significant religious force in the Roman Empire in just two centuries. It's really quite mind-boggling if you start to think about that. Just to help us out, just to give you an idea of some of the uh, factors that were, need to be played into this equation so it, it gives you a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on in that time. The early Christians were members 
of an illegal religion throughout this period of time. At best, they were tolerated, and at worst, they were severely persecuted. Early Christians didn't have a church building as we know them today. The majority of the places that they met in were converted homes. Early Christians didn't have the scriptures put together as we do now. They were actually putting together the canon at that time. Early Christians didn't have seeker-sensitive worship services, youth groups, sorry teens, worship bands, seminaries, or commentaries. Early Christians actually made it hard for someone to join the church. By the late second century, aspiring converts had to undergo a significant initiation period to prove that they were worthy of joining the community of the baptized. The early Christians did not have most of what we might think to employ for healthy results, but here's the thing. Against all those odds, believe it or not, they grew from a movement of 25,000 people to 20 million in just 200 short years. You know, we've been in this series uh, for the past seven weeks now, this series about mission. You know, mission has always been at the heart and the center of what Praxis Church has been. Um, This started nine years ago. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but being a part of the mission of God has been a central theme for us as a church. It's what's driven our coming. You know, Danielle and I moved here from Pennsylvania, and it has driven every piece of what we've done as a church over these past six years. But I want to tell you, as we've gone back to this series, you know, the series about mission, this is probably our fourth or fifth one at least, talking about the mission of God specifically. Let me just tell you that it's more than a series. And when we talk about Matthew chapter 28, and we go back to that passage of Scripture where Jesus tells the disciples, the followers of Jesus, what he wants them to do, it's way more than just a passage. This is way more meaningful than that. It's it's a recalibration. It's a first love. It's a look at our very purpose for existing as a church in the first place. And I promise you, that over the past seven weeks, it has not been a collection of good thoughts from myself or from Albie Powers from Elm City Church, has not been motivational speeches that we came up with during the week that we thought would be great to share, and it's not like a series that we just slapped an awesome graphic on, which we did, by the way. Um, Thank you, Brian. (laughs) Um, Because the early church had none of that. They had none of that. No, No snazzy polished, sneaky. They had no max, you know. They didn't, they didn't, the early church did not have a lot of what we think kind of encapsulates what's needed today to make a church seem appealing to the world. That, that interests me. That interests me because I think it has a lot to say to us about the church and where we're at today, and I'm going to get into that in a minute here, but um, this message contains a way of life that we believe and have believed that can enact a change and impact our communities, impact our cities, impact our nation, and impact our world in a way that no other entity or organization can do. That is the job that has been given to the church by Jesus himself. 
And that's what we believe here at this church. That's what Praxis Church believes. That's what we will believe as we come together as a church with Elm City. This is the foundation upon which we will work towards the benefit of the place that we live. I want to close out our series today because that's what we are doing. And we're in week seven and, and we're going to bring this series to a close. And then we're going to be jumping into a series about rhythms. If you've been around for the last six months or even longer than that, this is an idea that's been ruminating for quite a while. Um, rhythms. What are healthy rhythms? What are the rhythms of life that actually make us healthy people in healthy places? So we're going to get into that. It's going to be a whole series that leads up to Advent. And I hope you'll join us in that journey because I don't know, for me, I had my mind just awoken, awakened, awoken to the fact that um, you need to build healthy rhythms into your life if you expect to go the long haul in anything. And I'm talking about parenting, I'm talking about work, I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about ministry. You need to have healthy rhythms that are currently and ongoingly happening in your life to stay healthy for the long haul. So we're going to do that, but I want you to, for now, I want you to grab a Bible. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles available today. They're on the sidewall to the left. You can find one back there, and you can take one if you don't have a Bible. Take that with you. Um, if you have a phone, you can certainly go to um, Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to go. And I say this pretty regularly, like, you know, hey, in the world of technology that we live in now, there are all kinds of awesome apps out there that you can get on your phone, and they'll allow you to have access to hundreds of translations of the Bible. And one of them that we love around here is called Version. So go ahead and get that U version, just like it sounds, all together, and you will have access. But Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is another foundational passage that we, um, we believe our church has been called to build itself upon. And, and here it is, Acts 1, chapter 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That word, a couple words that stand out to me here, that word power, first of all, powerful that they use the word power. You will receive power. The Greek word for power is the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite from. It's explosive. It changes things. It's powerful. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, as a result of that power, will be, what, my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they were, and then in all Judea, if you zoomed out a little further, and then if you zoomed out a little further, Samaria, and then as far out as you can go, to the ends of the earth. This is the call that Jesus has given his disciples and also us. The book of Acts is the story of how the church as we know it got started and how the message of the gospel, that is, I don't want to just assume that the gospel is a commonplace language for everybody. When we, when we talk about the gospel here, we're talking about the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is the good news that started to spread throughout the known world at that time. Acts is a new chapter. It's a, it's a new point in the story where Jesus goes from walking around and physically being present with his followers to indwelling his disciples with his personal presence. We talk about this a lot around Praxis, you know, that God is ascending God. He sends himself in all different ways. He sends, first of all, he sends himself to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And even in that moment in the garden 
where they, uh, you know, Genesis chapter 3, the most depressing chapter in the whole Bible. It has altered the course of history for us as we know. We look around the world. We see brokenness. It is a direct result of the fall. And God, being the sending God that he is, sends himself to, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And then beyond that, he recognizes that we need to have the system that's been broken by our um, I, like the, I like the phrase cosmic disobedience. <laughs> um, there's something that needs to be changed as a result of our choice. And so what does God do? Eventually through history, we see that he sends, he raises up prophets to come along and to warn the people and to, to keep them moving towards God. And then eventually throughout the course of history, we see how Jesus comes on the scene. So God sends himself, but then he also sends his son Jesus and then we recognize that when Jesus is here and he travels the earth and he's with his disciples and his followers, he also says in John to, that I'm sending them into the world just as you, the Father, have sent me into the world. And so there's sending motion and movement that happens. And then what happens? Jesus goes back to be with God the Father, right? In this moment in Matthew chapter 28, it's the last thing he said before he went to be back with God the Father. And what is, who does he send next? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent as the indwelling presence of God into the people of God. And uh, if you were here for the series, you, you recognize we spent a whole week talking about temples and synagogues and where they used to be the place that God would, his physical presence would dwell for the people of Israel. Um, he now has sent the Holy Spirit to be in us and indwelling in us. And so we are the people of God who bring the presence of God wherever we go. And so I even talked about this building, like this building isn't like anything special, it's just a building, it's, it's a tool that God has used to build his church, but the significance of what happens in this building is what happens when the people of God that carry the presence of God come together. That's the significance of what happens in this space. So we don't get hung up on buildings, buildings are a tool. Hey, you know, you heard us talk about the Moco building that we're going to be getting into, we're really excited about that, but it's a tool. It's a tool for the kingdom. We can never lose sight of that. That is not the church. The new Moco building where we will be going sooner than later is going to be a tool used by God for years to come where the church will gather. I want to make sure you get that because we're not, around here, we, we really try to shy away from the idea of talking about we're going to church because church isn't a building. It's people. It's people of God on the mission of God in the community of God. Um, Jesus sends this one that he promises that, that will indwell his followers with his personal presence. And, you know, the entire book of Acts gets summed up in this one verse, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the believers are going to receive this power from the Holy Spirit, and they did, by the way, if you read the story, so that they can do what? They receive the power so that they can be his witnesses. I want to talk about that a little bit today, because what does that mean? And he, they become his witnesses and into all of the earth and, and to go into the surrounding communities and towns and even right where they are in Jerusalem. This is all encapsulated. So I think it, what I really want to do is focus on what does it mean to be a witness? You know, if, if, if the Holy Spirit's empowered us to be his witnesses, what does it look like to be a witness? And, you know, I think that being a witness to Jesus is actually crucial for a follower of Jesus. Now, some of you in here, when you hear the word witness, you may think to yourself, maybe a lot of you think, that um, you, you think more about witnessing. Anybody know what I mean by that? 
not only being a witness, but witnessing. It's that scary thing that I'm supposed to do where I tell people about Jesus and what he's done. And when you think about witnessing, maybe you get overwhelmed because you feel like you never know what to say. You just, you just don't know what to say. And, you, and maybe you even feel crippled or, or held back because you feel like you don't have all the answers. Um, it's something that you know you're supposed to do, but you know that you really don't do as much. And so that it just turns into a little bit of a guilt trip, right? This idea of witnessing or evangelism, because really you're not great at it or you're not doing it. And hopefully today, my, one of my goals today is, is for you to feel both comfort and challenge by talking about what a witness is and what it's not. And actually to be a witness has three primary meanings. I'm going to go through them. Where this word witness probably makes the most sense to us is in a court setting. In a court, someone is called forward to testify about something that they saw and observed. And that person is a witness of an event that happened. And that person has a responsibility to faithfully explain to others who have not seen or experienced what they have. So a witness points beyond themselves to the benefit of other people. That would be the first example of a witness. Now, maybe the more extreme example of what it meant to be a witness, especially for those people who were following Jesus and with Jesus, is the idea of being a martyr. Uh, the word witness in Greek is the word martus. It, it's where we get the English word martyr from. And uh, I've talked about this often at, you know, on my shelf at home. I have a pretty big, thick book called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's, it's the retelling or the recounting of how the followers of Jesus, the early followers of the church, um, suffered and were persecuted for the sake of Jesus. And for those people in that time that were undergoing persecution and even death, you may call them effective witnesses. There's something that happened to them that caused them to believe so much in what they were doing that they were willing to undergo persecution and death for the cause. Now, it's certainly not the only thing that we have that points to the evidence for the resurrection, but it is one thing. If you look in history, you will find out quickly as you look that something happened in that time that was unmatched by anything else that had taken place in that time. That is that the church grew by leaps and bounds, and it wasn't forceful growth. This is before Constantine, right? Before the Christianity became kind of a state religion. So there's something organic and something tangible and something life-changing that happened to the people of Jesus that began to affect other people. And it's one of the things that we point to as Christians as some evidence for the case for Christ or the, the case for the resurrection from Je of Jesus from the dead, that it actually did happen and it did have effects on people and on history. So we're not just mindlessly believing some sort of fairy tale. There are things that happened in history that point to something big happening. Um, example uh, number three, another way to think about what it means to be a witness is if you were and probably have been a spectator of some sports. Um, you know, we had a pretty good week, right? Um, I, I, uh, I'm feeling a little tired, but well worth it. Staying up for the Red Sox was appropriate, fun, exciting. Um, 
And uh, what, what, what a game, what a series of games, right? And now we are a team, hopefully you're a Red, I mean, if you're not a Red Sox fan, um, there are double doors uh, located right out in the lobby. Um, no. I, you know, all truth be told, I am not a huge sports fan, but man, do I love to jump on that bandwagon when our team is, is winning, right? Like, I don't talk so much about it when it's going bad, but man, if, if you've been to a sporting event, I've been to Fenway, what an experience that is. I just love be, that, that stadium is so great. I mean, it's, I, I guess it's, it's, is it smaller than some other stadiums? Like it's, it's more intimate, like you can look across the way and I, I, like we had a, somebody here from Praxis, this is uh, this past summer, um, and we were both at a Red Sox game with two different people. And uh, I, we, we found each other across the way. And like I could actually make their face out like without binoculars. And um, it was just neat like to be in that space. But we are there and we are observing what is happening out on this field. And let me tell you something, in culture, stadiums are the new temple. And players are the gods. And man, do we pay a lot of money to be there, you know? But man, it's like, it, this is a cultural thing, but it's also, it's also how we give witness to what's happening. And um, part of what it looks like to be a spectator of a sport is that you have, you've witnessed the game, or maybe you did witness the game. You witnessed that play that brought us to the next step. You can tell people about it with authority and with confidence. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people talking about it on Facebook, you know? Right after this took place, man, it's like people give witness to what's happening right now. It's like, all right, my Facebook feed is blowing up, you know, I see red and white everywhere. You know, and, and some of my friends are just jabbing it in a little bit, you know, to, to, their, other, to their other friends that uh, root for different teams. I don't know what those teams are, but, um, you know. You know, um, as we think about what it means to be a witness, um, I think about Chick-fil-A. I don't know why. But, um, you know, Chick-fil-A is, is something that, like, so Danielle and I, we, we used to live in Pennsylvania. If you don't know our story... Um, short drive-by version. We, we used to live in Pennsylvania. God called us to move back to New England to be part of what he was doing here in New England. That's a very abbreviated short version. But one cool thing is that, um, you know, we were just all new, brand new disciples, if you will, to this thing called Chick-fil-A. When Chick-fil-A started opening a lot of restaurants in Pennsylvania where we lived, and just so happens that one of the Chick-fil-A's that they opened was in this town called Downingtown. Now, we lived right on the edge of Downingtown, and it was like 10 minutes down the road from our house. Super dangerous. Super dangerous. And uh, just to give you an idea of our allegiance, Chick-fil-A at that time, we, they were running this promotion for their grand opening at this, at this Chick-fil-A that was going to open up. So Danielle and I, you know, we, you know, we don't have any kids, and we're, you know, just kind of like living, living crazy, and, you know, just like, all right, what are we going to do? What's our next adventure for the weekend? And, you know, all that. So, so they were having their grand opening, and they were running this promotion that if you were the, within the hundredth person in line to the grand opening, you would get Chick-fil-A for a year. A year. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> I'll join you. Um, for a year. So, you know, we, we got there. So we, you know, being normal that we are, we got there at 4 a.m. And we were not alone. There were lots of other people there waiting in line for their chance to get Chick-fil-A for a year. So, you know, they start counting. They, they handed out these coupons, right? And uh, they had numbers on them. And they're getting closer to where Danielle and I are standing in line. And um, 
oh man, I was so nervous. I was like, they are, they're like at 92 and we're like, it's like feet away. And I don't know if we're going to make it. We're, I don't know if we're going to, we're going to make it here, but they got to us and uh, wouldn't you know, I was the hundredth person in line and I got Chick-fil-A for a year, man. And it was awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I may or may not have gone to Chick-fil-A at least three to four times a week for a certain period of time. It was phenomenal. I mean, you know, Danielle was 101, so there was that. Like, like kind of look, you know, like, oh my gosh, how does this happen? But I was the 100th person in line, and Chick-fil-A, man, it was awesome. So cool. Our church was like huge Chick-fil-A. We, we would host events there, and, you know, people, crazy people, dressing up like cows and all that, you know? But um, there's some serious disciples of Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's some diehards. We did a, a car wash. Actually, we have some friends in town from Pennsylvania, and uh, we used to do these things um, called uh, servant evangelism, and we used to do these events where we would serve people in our community and just, like, just, just for fun, like, just to, just to love people like Jesus loved them without any strings attached. That was kind of the thing. And this one particular one, we did a dollar car wash at the Chick-fil-A drive-in. Like, they always allowed us to do that. And uh, it was called the dollar car wash. And when people showed up to get their car washed, we gave them a dollar. And it was, like, mind-blowing. Like, just flipped the, the whole thing around. But Chick-fil-A, they always open up for stuff that we wanted to do and just fun stuff and just, just trying to show people Jesus' love and help them understand that the, the church doesn't have to be, you know, maybe their negative or bad experience that, that they were used to. But um, I don't know if you know this, but it's very unfortunate, but there's not a lot of Chick-fil-A's in New Hampshire. I think that Keene would be a wonderful place for Chick-fil-A. Don't you? I mean, can, can I get a witness? I think so. I'm with you. I'm with you. I may or may not have been interested in opening one up at one point, just going to put it out there. Um, but, you know, Chick-fil-A, here's a couple, you know, the closest Chick-fil-A to us is, I mean, depending on how you look at it, Chicopee Mass or Nashua. Those are too far. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Who wants to drive to Nashua to get Chick-fil-A? But um, Chick-fil-A, if you know anything about, well, somebody does. Okay. I might join you on that car ride. Their headquarters are located in Atlanta, and Chick-fil-A is uh, the fastest growing and most profitable fast food franchise in the entire country. Um, nationwide, there are over 2,000 restaurants, and that number keeps on growing. Most stores are open from 6.30 in the morning to 10 at night. And if you know anything that's unique about Chick-fil-A, they are not open on Sundays. Amen. <laughs> um, so here's a, uh, just an aside. So we were on vacation last year, and uh, I forgot. You know, we, it was a Sunday. And I was like all excited. I was all pumped. We were going to go to Chick-fil-A. It was Sunday. And we drove down there. We went all the way to it, got there. Nobody in the parking lot, dead as a doornail. And we were like, it's Sunday. Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. So now what have I been doing for the past few minutes here with you about Chick-fil-A? I've been talking about Chick-fil-A. I've been, I've been talking about that. But I, I've been a witness to Chick-fil-A, right? I'm like essentially trying to make disciples right now of Chick-fil-A. All of us, by the way, are trying to make disciples of something or someone on a, on a more serious note. All of us have somebody or something that we are telling people about and giving witness to that we hope they will hear the good news about that in their life and be, be helped by it. All of us are making disciples of someone or something. 
And our hope here at Praxis is that we will see that Jesus is the best. He's the best king that we have, and so we want to make disciples of him. We believe his way is the best. But what I've been just doing for the past few minutes is talking about Chick-fil-A, and I've been a witness to it. I've actually told you some facts about Chick-fil-A. I told you how many locations they have. I told you where they got started. I told you their business hours of operation. And I told you that they're not open on Sundays. But what else did I do? I told you some facts, but what else did I do? I, I gave you some of my experience, right? Because my experience is part of what it means to be a witness to Chick-fil-A. I can't just give you facts and hope that you think it's great and, you know, maybe check it out. But I have to share my experience if I'm going to be a faithful witness of this organization called Chick-fil-A. And, you know, being a faithful witness to Jesus is a lot like this. It's a lot like this. It involves both knowing facts and having experiences. And I would actually go out on a limb and say that I don't think you can actually be a faithful witness of Jesus if you don't have both, both facts and understanding and experience of who he is. And it's sort of like trying to ride a bike with one pedal. You can push on one pedal, but you can't get that bike upright unless you're pushing both. And so we need facts and we need the experience of Jesus and how he's changed our lives in order to be a faithful witness to him. And we know that without that, with trying to ride a pedal, you know, with one, or ride a bike with one pedal, it just doesn't work. You have to have both and you have to have balance. One of the biggest threats to the gospel, I believe today, especially for those who are around the church, have been around the church, you know, and that's a whole group of people right there, you know, in that circle, there's people that have been faithful, there's there's people that have been burnt by the church, you've been hurt by the church, you are maybe possibly de-churched and coming back to church for the first season. Um, there are lots of people in this category. And one of the biggest threats to the gospel for people in this category, I think, is that you have or you do see, you see the gospel as duty. You see the gospel or being a witness to who Jesus is as a burden or an obligation, not as good news that has truly changed you and is changing you. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's become a religious ritual for you. And that's because you're not experiencing the life-changing power of Jesus. That's exactly what it is. You're not having an experience with Jesus that is radically reorienting and changing your mind about the place that we live in, you know, about the narrative that exists in our world today. And let me just say, as somebody that's lived in that space before, that people pick up on it. Because people know, and I've said this before, people know if the gospel is just a religious checklist box that you, you know, kind of check off, they know it's that, or they'll know if it's actually changed your life. They will. People are really smart. People can pick up on fake. Is Jesus changed you? Have, you? have you experienced his love? Has he radically reoriented your narrative in life? The apostles are those people who walked with Jesus in the flesh. They were witnesses to this reality of what actually happened. And so the facts were really important to them, but so was their experience of Jesus. They had experienced Jesus. Listen to what they say later on in Acts chapter 1, a little further down in verse 21 and 22, when they decided to replace Judas, one of the apostles, with another apostle. This was their qualification. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must come with us as a witness to his resurrection. That was the qualification for the person that they replaced Judas with. This person needed to know facts, and they also needed to have an experience with Jesus. This is how important this is. It was so important to the early church that Jesus really actually rose from the dead and that he was the promised Messiah that did fulfill all kinds of Old Testament promises that came thousands of years before he did, by the way. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. If you go back and look at things that were written thousands of years before Jesus comes on the scene and he perfectly fulfilled those promises. But it was also necessary and built upon the experience of Jesus and how it had changed their lives personally. And how important is that for us to understand the balance of the two? To understand and know facts. Hey, I would say that there's some of us here in this room with that whole bike analogy. You're a little lopsided because you understand a lot of facts about Jesus, but Jesus hasn't actually changed your heart. And he's not changing your heart. So you know a lot of stuff but you haven't had a lot of life change and experience because Jesus isn't meeting you on a regular basis in that way or that you're aware of. And then there, on the other side, the, the imbalance of, of people that I, I know have had an experience with Jesus, it has changed their whole life, but they need to get a little bit more tight on their facts. And, and we need to do both. We need to do both well. Both require our brain and both require our hearts. Statistically, I want to give you a couple stats about where we live and why this, this affects us. And how has it affected me as somebody that felt like God had called me to come back to this place? Statistically, where we live, there are very few people who, by the statistics, by the, you know, the census that, they, that we have, the data that we're working with, have a saving relationship with Jesus. People that have encountered the life-changing power of the gospel. And when we say gospel, what are we saying? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has changed something in us. And here's the thing. Even though there are some great churches in the city of Keene and around, by the census data that we have, only about 5% of the population attends a church where the gospel is preached and lived out. 5%. That might be conservative. The religious data from the 2010 census shows that over 75% of Cheshire County's population has no religious affiliation. 75%. This category is, is what we now call the nuns. And no, I'm not talking about the Catholic Church. I'm talking about the N-O-N-E-S. There was a, a great article that came out a few years ago, I think Barna Research Group put this out, about the rise of the nuns. The nuns can be anybody in the category of an atheist or an agnostic or someone who doesn't know or care what they believe. That's a category too. Um, or just someone who might have no connection to a faith community at all. Now, I want you to hear this. I want you to compare this with me. The national average is only around 23% right now for that category. And among millennials, it is 34%. Okay, the median age in Keene, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, is, is amazingly young. The median age in Keene is 34 years old. 
If you look at the data from 2010, our census, it's actually 34.1, but it's, that's not counting Keene State College or Antioch University. So that means that a huge percentage of Keene is in the age group that is most rapidly leaving organized versions of faith in a community that is already three times the national average for the category of the nuns, those with no religious affiliation. Now, there's several ways you can look at that. One of the ways is you can look at that and say, that's concerning. What's going, what is that? A question that might come up as a result of that is, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for, for us as a church in this region? What does that mean for the future of Christianity? I mean, if you start to think about it, and you start to look at the trend of what, of what is actually happening, it starts to get a little concerning at just first glance. Now, here's what I don't think it means because I'm pretty sure I know what I don't think it means. I'm still learning and trying to kind of like dissect our culture and try to figure out how this timeless message applies. But here's what I don't think it means. I don't think it means that we need to make our ministry programs cooler. I'm being serious. I don't think that it means that we need to have better coffee. And I don't think that it means that we need to create new things that play into the consumer culture that we live in right now. I don't think that's what the church has been called to do at all. In fact, the church has been trying to do that, just to appear in, look into the, the church world right now. The church has been trying to do that for over 20 years, and guess what? It's not working. It's not working. Do you know that there's a whole generation of people that are coming up that don't care about your cool church? I'm serious. The data is out there. There's a lot of people that are not looking for an, a cool experience on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or a Thursday night or whatever service we add to the list. They're looking for relationships that matter. They're looking for something real. And so here's what I want to say. We do have the answers to the crisis. We believe that. In fact, our time out in Minnesota this past week was all about reminding us, the leaders that were gathered there and the larger church, which I'm bringing back to you now, is that we have everything that we need to see a movement of the gospel go forward in our cities and in our states and in our world. We have all of it there. Jesus has given everything to us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us, and he gives us brains to figure out how to take that and contextualize that in the places that we live. We do not lack anything when it comes to the mission of God. We do have the answers to the crisis. Jesus has given his church the ecclesia or the called out ones, everything it needs to accomplish this mission. How many re remember the movie The Wizard of Oz? The Wizard of Oz, such a classic movie. Do you know that my wife has never seen The Wizard of Oz all the way through? You know, there are things that you learn in your marriage, and I just so happened to learn something new about her three days ago. You have not seen, okay. So we, we actually did, I was on a mission to find The Wizard of Oz, and I was like, oh, $14 to rent on Netflix? Forget it. 
But it's worth it, but I don't know. If you have it on DVD, could I borrow it, please? Thank you. The Wizard of Oz is an amazing story that has stood the test of time. The narrative of The Wizard of Oz has stood the test of time from the, from the 20s. It's when the movie was made. I remember watching The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. My grandparents' house. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and if they watched that movie, we would all be in therapy for years to come. Because there's some scary stuff in that movie. You know, there's, there's some crazy parts in that movie. Something about flying monkeys and But the main character of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, as you know, gets transported in a tornado. Don't ask me how this works. She gets transported in a tornado from Kansas to the magical land of Oz. Now, wanting to return home, she receives guidance from who? The good witch of the north, Glinda. Glinda instructs her and her friends along the way to do what? Follow the, follow the yellow brick road. Um, yes, follow the yellow brick road. Okay, so she does that, right? And she, along the way, she, she, she's going along the way and she makes some friends, right? She's got some friends with her and she comes upon the scarecrow. Now, the scarecrow who wants to join her because he wants to be given some brains, who believes that the, the great and powerful Wizard of Oz will grant him some brains. So he joins up with the crew. They go a little further, and who do they bump to? The Tin Man. There he is. The Tin Man. I love that scene. He's standing in the woods. He's just frozen, right? Rusted out. And the Tin Man joins up with them because he wants what? A heart. He believes that the great and powerful Oz will give him a heart. And then finally, they come across another friend who seemed not so great at first, but we come to realize quickly that he is the cowardly lion who hopes that the great wizard will give him what? Courage. Wow, you guys are awesome. All right. Wow, right on it. So you know the story. After they, like, survive some encounters, including this one particular woman, the Wicked Witch of the West, whew, she scares me. She's, she did a great job in that, in that movie. Wow. I still see that face, you know, and wow, she did a great job. She really left an imprint on my life. Um, I may or may not have been in my parents' room a few times after watching that movie. Uh, but uh, she has some friends. They're flying monkeys, and they have some run-ins with her. And eventually what happens, they get to the, the Emerald City, right? You know the story. They get to the Emerald City, and they find out that actually the great and powerful Oz is actually a big, fat hoax, and that he actually doesn't have the power to grant them what they're looking for. So what happens, right? They are sent on their merry way. They're brokenhearted. They leave the Emerald City. They head back, and after one last encounter with the Wicked Witch of the West, which proves to be fatal for her and her friends, her minions, they realize that something else is happening, and they, they recognize along the way something very, very profound. After this final encounter with the witch and her minions, Dorothy and her friends overcome the source of evil and thereby liberate Oz. But through all of their ordeals and in their final victory, they discover that they already have what they're looking for. They've always had it. In fact, they, they've had it all along. They had it on the Yellow Brick Road, on their way to the Emerald City and back. 
The scarecrow actually turns out he's very clever. The tin man really does have a real heart. And as we see, the lion turns out to have some real courage. All that time, they didn't really need the wizard. What they needed was a situation that forced them to activate in themselves what they already possessed. I think we're in a moment like that with the church in our culture. As somebody who gives significant time to studying the church and the culture in which we live, I believe that we're being forced into a situation right now where it's not like we have the power to change people's lives or you know, manipulate. That's not what we want to do. But I believe that Jesus is calling us to take a look and to take stock of the fact that we have, as a church, everything that we need, that we've been given everything that we need to accomplish the mission, Jesus' mission, not our mission. We've, we have everything that we need to accomplish the mission of God in the world around us because Jesus is in charge. You know, I've spent the last, the better part of the last nine years, if you count the years that um, Danielle and I were feeling called to and, and praying for this place. The better part of the last nine years of my life wondering and, and praying and hoping and how we might bear better witness to the gospel in our context here. Because as you've seen, you know, the stats, the numbers, they're pretty dire. They're pretty, pretty, pretty dark. We, we in this part of the country are the most post-Christian as it gets at this point. Just, this is our new world, you know? And I actually want to embrace it with everything I've got, you know? I actually am ready for that. I don't know about you, but I, you know, the idea of, of the church holding the moral high ground, that whole idea, you know, getting tied in to politics so much so that we don't even know the difference between Jesus and a political party anymore. That's about as political as I get right there, just so you know. Um, Jesus is always going to be the king of this country. He's always going to be the king of this universe, this world that he's made. And no amount of post-Christendom is ever going to change that. It may change the culture in which we live, the people's minds, popular opinion, all that stuff, identity, like everything that exists out there. Jesus is still the king. He's still on the throne. And he's done this. He has given his church, which has stood the test of time, has gone through greater persecution and more dire circumstances than we can ever imagine, and grew from 25,000 to 25 million in just 200 short years under persecution and death. If that can happen, and, it, and that happened because Jesus was empowering them, and that was his mission, then what more can happen with a group of people that might now consider themselves exiles in a foreign land? Because that's what it is. Jesus has given everything that we need to accomplish the mission by partnering with him. He's given everything that he needs, that we need to the church. We don't have to go looking for new ways of doing church and programs and you know, technical things and logistics. Jesus gives everything that we need. He gives us all the basic blueprints of that. And I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to join us and continue on this journey to figure out what that looks like because I believe that there are some things that have been lost in the process 
including just simple things like the mission, community, you know, getting back to the heart of what the gospel looked like if you stripped everything away. And what has happened for me over the last six years, but also over in the last six weeks, I've asked myself this question. As somebody who has spent the better part of the last nine years wondering how God was going to do something and move and how he's going to continue to push the gospel forward in the place that we live, I've asked myself this question. If everything was stripped away, if, if everything, all the, the stuff that we love that, that might not matter as much, if that all was stripped away and it was just the church community and the bare essentials of what makes a church a church, would that be enough? Would that be enough? What if we didn't have a website? What if we didn't have cool coffee or programs or, you know, a, you know we just started a, a student ministry here, you know? Like, what, what if none of that stuff existed? I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying, what if it looked like the early church? And what if none of that stuff exists? Will we still believe that God could build this church? Will we still believe that God is in the business of changing people's lives? I think that God can do a whole lot with a, with a whole little. And he did that. I mean, 12 people followed him for three years. And they ended up changing the world. We're more than 12 in here. If Jesus has radically changed your life and reoriented your life, I believe that you've been called to be his witness. And, and, and by the way, you're a witness again of something or someone. You don't get that choice. You're always going to be a witness to something or someone. So I want to invite you to see yourself as a witness for Jesus. If he's called you into that, into that walk, if you had an experience with him, hey, if you're still in that camp, where you're just trying to figure this all out and, and all you have to work with right now are facts or you're starting to learn some facts, keep going. <laughs> like, ask Jesus to reveal himself to you in a way that's personal and in a way that could change and reorient your life. I've, I've had so many experiences with people that have told me that it was at the moment that Jesus met them in an experience with him that actually showed them that the facts were really important. Maybe you're, you're on the other side of it. Maybe, maybe you're all experience and no facts. And maybe Jesus is calling you into a season of starting to learn a little bit more about why you believe what you believe. That's okay. We, Praxis Church, Elm City Church, will be a community where you have room to figure that out. I love that about this community. I, I, there's not a lot of that that I've experienced in the last six years of being around. It's a community where it is a safe place to figure things out to have dialogues that matter, to disagree. Can you believe that? We, not everybody in this room agrees with one another. That's okay. Jesus is still the king, and he's going to build this church. And scripture says the gates of hell, interpret that however you will, will not prevail against it. And that's the Jesus that we serve. And if he's truly empowered you by the Holy Spirit to be his witness, you need to remember today that you've been given everything you need by him. 